This is a radio podcast from Centuries of Sound. If you want to hear these a year earlier and help the show survive, please consider supporting Centuries of Sound at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash centuries of sound. For just $5 or local equivalent per month, you can have access to all of my mixes and radio shows. On Cambridge 105 Radio. If you are a close observer, you have already noticed that the Edison disc phonograph requires no change of needles. The reproducer point is a genuine diamond. Carefully selected, polished, and fitted, it is never changed. In 1878, Mr. Edison invented and patented the first disc phonograph ever made. But this instrument before you is the first disc phonograph he has ever permitted to be offered to the public in his name. It represents 34 years of personal investigation and experimentation by Mr. Edison, and probably marks the limit of human achievement in recording and reproducing sound. In designing the reproducer for this instrument, Mr. Edison constructed and tested over 2,000 different models. The material used in the record was selected with equal care. It is an entirely new material, possessing properties which have a very great part in the excellence of the reproduction. Hello and welcome to Centuries of Sound, the show where we use archive audio to travel back to a specific year in the prehistory of recorded music. My name is James Errington, and as well as this show, I make soundscape-style mixes for every year. So far, I'm up to 1922, so if you want to hear more music and less me, then come along to centuriesofsound.com and check it out. For this show, however, this time, we're headed to the year 1912. So... Where was the world of recorded music at in 1912? Let's start with a quote from sound historian Mark Katz. Why was the phonograph valued so highly as a means of musical progress? To answer this question, we must recognise two perceptions widely held in 20th century America. That classical music was a powerful cultural and musical force, to which Americans sadly lacked exposure, and that technology, perhaps more than any other agent, could foster positive social change. So, as, uh, as classical music is the prestige form here, why don't we start with a piece by Polish piano maestro and later President of Poland, Ignacy Jan Paderewski. This is his recording of Debussy's Reflections in the Water.
That was Ignacy Jan Paderewski's Debussy Images Set One Reflections in the Water, a recording from the year 1912, an example of prestige music. Musical taste is a battleground populated by fanatics on all sides, and perhaps the worst flashpoint of all is the argument that, as they say, things ain't what they used to be. These days, this point of view is often characterised as rockism perhaps best defined in the 2004 New York Times article by Kalefa Sana. So here's a quote from that. She says, A rockist is somebody who reduces rock and roll to a caricature, then uses that caricature as a weapon. Rockism means idolising the authentic old legend, or underground hero, while mocking the latest pop star, lionising punk while barely tolerating disco, loving the live show and hating the music video, extolling the growling performer while hating the lip-synker. Over the past decades, these tendencies have congealed into an ugly sort of common sense. Rockism isn't unrelated to older, more familiar prejudices. That's part of why it's so powerful and so worth arguing about. The pop star, the disco diva, the lip-synker, the awesomely bad hit-maker, could it really be a coincidence that rockist complaints often pit straight white men against the rest of the world? So this is not really a new phenomenon, of course. If you read papers from the 1960s, uh, music papers or just the press in general, you'll find cultural commentators of many varieties complaining about the ubiquity of the new rock music and uh, soul music, which to their ears is self-evidently inferior to jazz or classical music. And this even has not entirely been consigned to history. Let's take a 2015 BBC lecture from the recently deceased Roger Scruton, where he complains about popular music being, well, popular. The magical encounter with the Beethoven Quartet, the Bach Suite, the Brahms Symphony, in which your whole being is gripped by melodic and harmonic ideas and taken on a journey through the imaginary space of music. That experience which lies at the heart of our civilization and which is an incomparable source of joy and consolation to all those who know it is no longer a universal resource. It has become a private eccentricity, something that a dwindling body of oldies cling to but which is regarded by many of the young as irrelevant. Increasingly, young ears cannot reach out to this enchanted world and therefore turn away from it. The loss is theirs, but you cannot explain that to them any more than you can explain the beauty of colours to someone who is congenitally blind. Is there a remedy? Yes, I think there is. The addictive ear, dulled by repetition, is shut tight as a clam around its pointless treasures. 
but you can prise it open with musical instruments. Put a young person in a position to make music and not just to hear it, and immediately the ear begins to recover from its lethargy. By teaching children to play musical instruments, we acquaint them with the roots of music in human life. The next step is to introduce the idea of judgment. The belief that there is a difference between good and bad, meaningful and meaningless, profound and vapid, exciting and banal, this belief was once fundamental to musical education. But it offends against political correctness. Today there is only my taste and yours. The suggestion that my taste is better than yours is elitist, an offence against equality. But unless we teach children to judge, to discriminate, to recognise the difference between music of lasting value and mere ephemera, we give up on the task of education. Judgment is the precondition of true enjoyment and the prelude to understanding art in all its forms. So that's a clip from uh, Roger Scruton on the BBC's A Point of View uh, from 2015. Roger was naturally in favour of the more refined varieties of jazz and presumably ragtime, but nevertheless his general attitude was exactly that of the gatekeepers of music in 1912, chief among them, of course, Mr Thomas Edison. Now, up until this point, Edison had been resolutely on one side in the format wars. His cylinders, you might know what's wax cylinders, against the now open source disc recordings, you might call them 78s. Now, however, he'd been persuaded to start making discs, but as always, entirely on his own terms. Now, what we're talking about here is the Edison Diamond Disc, and it really is something to see these objects. I had a look at one in an exhibition in the British Library a couple of years ago. Instead of the standard side-to-side -side movement that you expect on records, Edison insisted on keeping his Hill and Dale etching technique. With grooves up to a couple of millimetres deep, the records needed to be substantially thicker, so six millimetres compared with the one millimetre you would expect from the already quite thick shellac discs. That is thick. Imagine a vinyl record the thickness of two pound coins, if you can. It's a substantial, serious object, made for only the highest quality sounds. And what sounds were they? Well, let's have another clip from the demonstration disc we had at the start of the show to explain what kind of things they thought would be recorded on these diamond discs. Inasmuch as this instrument is capable of a real interpretation of music, Mr. Edison intends to make it the means of offering all of the world's finest music to the American people. From month to month, he will present purposeful programs of music, including the works of the great composers, a revival of English and ballad opera and historic lyrics, a review of the music of the nation, gems of grand opera, the fine old songs, so aptly called heart songs, the best musical numbers from modern light opera successes, and all of the contemporary popular music. Now, the last of those, uh, contemporary popular music, don't think for a moment that that means we're going to be getting the latest cutting-edge ragtime dance numbers. For popular music here, we should read parlour songs, really. Perhaps from Tin Pan Alley, but absolutely not from its more bawdy end. The sort of music you would buy on the printed page and perform at a higher-class social event, performed on disc by trained tenors backed by an orchestra, not generally the music which is uh, interesting to play for you on the whole. 
To be fair, however, from the angle of classical music, this commitment to quality of performance and fidelity of sound did lead to some excellent recordings being made. It's because we have these discs that we can hear very early recordings from Paderewski, the most renowned pianist of his day. And then there's uh, Fritz Kreisler, perhaps the greatest violinist in the world, whose distinctive sound was hugely influential, not just in America, but around the world, and whose celebrated rediscoveries of works by Pugnani, Tartini and uh, Vivaldi were later revealed actually to be his own compositions. Uh, He said, uh, the name changes, but the value remains. These recordings may not reflect the musical revolutions happening out of earshot, but it's nevertheless wonderful to have them in such condition. Here is one example of uh, Fritz Kreisler. It's actually a genuine composition by Bach, this one. Bach's Preladium. Thank you. 
So that was Fritz Kreisler with Bach's Preladium. So how about that music of the nations we heard in the introduction? Well, there's plenty of this, naturally, but not so much of it on Diamond Disc. In Eastern Europe, foundational klezmer records are being made. Klezmer is the traditional music of Eastern Europe, especially uh, the Jewish and Gypsy communities. So let's hear one of those. This is uh, Naftul Brandvine's orchestra with uh, Turkish Yale Veuve. That was Naftul Brandvine's orchestra from uh, the year 1912. You're listening to Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. 
Now, also in 1912, we have some recordings from uh, Armenian priest, musicologist, composer, arranger, singer and choirmaster Komitas, a very important figure in uh, Armenian culture in total. He's recording these uh, devotional works at this point, and they remain vitally important in the Caucasus to this day. So this is uh, Komitas Vardapet with uh, Kele Kele. was Komitas Vardapet with Kele Kele. On the other side of the world, let's not forget Paraguayan Agustin Barrios, one of the most prolific virtuoso guitar players and composers of all time, who is establishing the importance of an instrument we'll be hearing a lot more from going forward, of course. At this time, the banjo is 
vastly more important than the guitar, but he's changing all of that. Uh, this is uh, a mazurka, so it's a Slavic-style tune, and it's called Matilde. was Agustin Barrios with Mathilde. Um, let's head north to the Caribbean now. This is the earliest known recording of Calypso music. It's from Lovey's String Band. Now they're a group from Trinidad, uh, at this point recording in New York. Most of these recordings will be in New York at this point. The group originally formed sometime in the 1890s and they continued performing until the 1920s. Uh, this one is called Mango Vert. <laughs> Thank you. 
that was Lovey's Trinidad String Band with Mango Vert from the year 1912. And you're listening to Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. On Cambridge 105 Radio. Now let's have something we've heard a fair amount of in previous shows, military band music. This is kind of a goodbye to the genre, which I have mm, mixed feelings about. A lot of it has by this point become hot ragtime music. But here is an example, kind of preserved in aspic from the 1890s, but still kind of moderately hot. A madras rather than the vindaloo. It's the Empire Military Band with uh, Dill Pickles. was the Empire Military Band with Dill Pickles from the year 1912. Let's hear something a little closer to actual hot ragtime, this time however played by Columbia Records in-house band and conducted by the musical director of Columbus Records. So I'm making no claims of authenticity for this. It is uh, a little more upbeat and kind of uh, you can hear 
where they're getting to a little more. So it's a Prince's Orchestra with Black Diamond Rag. was Prince's Orchestra with Black Diamond Rag, uh, the nearest I'm afraid we're going to hear to a hot band ragtime this time. So let's have a look what our friend Al Jolson is up to. At the end of 1911, he accepted an offer to perform in the musical Vera Violetta, and he became so popular that his weekly salary was increased from $500 to $750, which at the time was quite a lot of money. Here he is with a rip-off of Alexander's ragtime band. It's called Brass Band Ibrahim Jones. Holy Ibrahim from Alabama Was just a good-for-nothing lazy man No kind of work to him was interesting Though he was always on the job suggesting But folks confessed his laziness Was never known to stand a certain test he seemed that melody, and he could not agree. He started band, and he gets busy every time. A band starts playing, he just looks all around, all around, all around. 
and his body commenced to swim, and he bowed to the ground, to the ground, to the ground. He stands there while listening, soon his lips they uh, start whistling, and he's gone, gone, gone with the flash and the dash and the crash. Makes no difference where that man is. He'll be there. He'll be there. He'll be there. He'll be there. If there's people all around him, he don't care. He don't care. He don't care. He don't care. Other times he's doggone lazy, but 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 it seems that music just uh, sets him crazy, and the folks all call him Brass Ephraim Counted bell was held out there. All kinds of bands arrived from everywhere. The playing certainly kept me from busy. He chased them bands around till he got dizzy. They made him mad, but he was glad. Cause music simply couldn't make him sad. Those bands have left the town, but he don't wear a frown. Wow, he follows them around. He's happy every time a band starts playing. He just looks all around, all around, all around. Then his body starts to swing, and he bows to the ground, to the ground, to the ground. He stands there while listening. Soon his lips they uh, start whistling. Then he's gone, gone. Gone with the flash and the dust and the crash Makes no difference where that band is anywhere He'll be there, he'll be there, he'll be there If there's people all around him He don't care, he don't care, he don't care, he's a bear Other times he's stuck on living But, but, but it just seems that music just uh, sets him crazy And the folks all call him Abraham that was Al Jolson with brass band Ephraim Jones. Uh, here's a rather sweet duet from two of the most prolific recording artists of the era, Billy Murray and Ada Jones. This is called Wedding Glide. Come on, we're going to have a little raggy wedding. Come on, come down, we're all the classy folks are I've got the preacher and here's the ring I've got the girl, I've got everything And there's a band to play a wedding ride Don't stop the bride down at the church We'll soon be waiting Don't stop, he mustn't think that I am hesitating I wonder where my best man can be Shake your shoulder. 
with Wedding Glide. Now let's uh, stick with vaudeville, or actually in this case musical. We can head across the Atlantic to the UK. This is uh, Clarice Main. She was born in London in 1886. She died in London in 1966. Quite a life there. Main often played the principal girl in pantomimes as well as being a noted musical performer. Here's a song she popularised and some people may be familiar with it. It's uh, Joshua by George Arthurs and Bert Lee. Would venture inside. He'd give her a kiss, 
and he'd whisper good night, then quicker than thought, he would vanish from sight whenever may lovingly cry. Josh, you are, Josh, you are, why don't you call and see Mama, she'll be pleased to know you are my best above. Josh, you are, Josh, you are, nicer than lemon squash, you are, yes. By gosh, you are. Yoki, 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 On Cambridge 105 Radio. That was Clarice Main with Joshua. You've been listening to Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. I've been James Errington. If you'd like to find out more about Centuries of Sound or hear the mixes I've made for every year from 1853 to 1922 and also 2016 to 2018, you can come along to the website centuriesofsound.com. If you'd like to send me any kind of feedback, I'm uh, james at centuriesofsound.com or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram by searching for Centuries of Sound or any good podcast app or uh, Mixcloud as well. <laughs> Let's close with something else from Edison Records. This is five of their best-known male singers, Billy Murray, John Beeling, Steve Porter, William F. Hooley and Will Oakland. Uh, they're referred to in this case as the Heidelberg Quintet. Uh, They're singing a very good example of the sentimental ballads, which are usually a lot worse than this. This one's called I Want to Love You While the Music's Playing. Thank you for joining me today. Good night. Peace.
ride up in the chariot, ride up in the chariot, ride up in the chariot, over in Jordan, ride up in the chariot, ride up in the chariot. Thank you for listening to this Centuries of Sound podcast. If you want to hear these a year earlier and help the show survive, please consider supporting Centuries of Sound at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash centuries of sound. For just $5 or local equivalent per month, you can have access to all of my mixes and radio shows.